2: When I was, I think I was 32, I had multiple addictions. I was bulimic, like extremely bulimic, binging and purging like $100, $200, $300 worth of food a day. I was drinking a couple of bottles, three bottles. I mean, I I was drinking, you know, on the severe end of alcohol use disorder. I smoked pot every day from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed and in the middle of the night, if I woke up, I smoked cigarettes. I was just, you know, I was so addicted.
3: We are back again with another episode of Comeback Stories. So, we're here today with Holly Whitaker. She's the author of New York Times bestseller, Quit Like a Woman, the radical choice to not drink in a culture obsessed with alcohol. Now, I know you're doing way more than just writing bestsellers, but this was how I learned of you. And I kind of wanted to introduce you this way because I randomly had two female clients who were either reading or had read your book. And then I started seeing all this great press about you. I heard about how Chrissy Teigen credits you for helping her get sober. So it's an honor to have you here, Ollie.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
3: Yeah. And we always get right into it. Ask our first question. Tell us a little bit about what growing up for you was like.
2: Um, For me it's a weird question because I don't actually get asked it that much. And I actually don't think about it that much, which I think is one of the things that has actually allowed me to be successful in recovery, which is just this constant forward motion. So I'm trying to think like to put it in a nutshell, it was idyllic. You know, my mom was a stay at home mom. My dad ran his own business. We lived in the central Valley of California. Our family was around, you know, we had a three bedroom home and two cars and, just extremely middle income, middle of the road. And, um, I grew up with a a loving mom and dad. And I think I also have memories of having an awareness when I was really young of something not being right. Um, you know, and I, when I, when I try and go back and I do this in my recovery, I have tried to piece together what it was like. I think in early recovery, I'm not sure if, if either of you did this, but I just was really trying to figure out what happened. I really was focused on this moment of when was it that basically I became set up to live this life where I would be struggling with with substances. And in my mind, I could never really trace it back to one particular thing. And I couldn't not tie my childhood to it, but I also really couldn't tie this like trajectory to it. I had a great childhood. And the biggest thing that ever happened to me that impacted my life magnificently was that my parents got divorced when I was 14, but then my dad was gay and had been closeted since he was a kid. I had married my mom denying himself. And so I had this like one, two punch of one, you know, the divorce to really, you know, my father confronting his sexuality and therefore me at a really young age, having to confront my own and then there's actually a third thing, which was my mom was disabled and my mom had to go back to work and my dad just disappeared. And so my life, there's always like before divorce and after divorce when I think about it and who I was because leading up to it, I worked for my dad when I was little. I was always very industrious. I was a straight A student. I was an honor student. And then after the divorce, <laughs> um, not so much, you know, I just gave up. I really gave up on being Uh, a hard worker. Um, I I gave up on being good, I would say. I gave up on all the things that I thought would make me a, a good girl. And I really threw myself into, I don't know, successful, I guess. So it's, I don't have a perfect way to explain how I grew up because it's so complex. And you know this, you paint your story now over what it was then based on the realizations that you have as an adult. And so I could you know, spin up a million things of what it was like. But from what I remember, it was good. And then it was hard.
3: (laughs) I'm fascinated by the answers, because as we came up with these answers, as we were building this podcast, Darren's episode is episode one, mine is episode two. And Darren's growing up for him was confusing. Growing up for me was like, it was easy. That was my answer. It was easy. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting how no matter if it's, you know, Darren not being Black enough for the Black people, his Black friends, but growing up in more of a white neighborhood. So making it very confusing, which if you listen to Darren's story, that's kind of the root of his story, his addiction, where mine was just something completely different. But my childhood was cake. It was just easy. So it. Yeah. I don't think it matters what our childhoods are like. It can end with us in the same place. That's right. That's right. What would you say was like an early memory of pain that really stands out for you?
2: I had, I think it was just the the feeling of, of, of other. I think I felt extremely disconnected from my family. My sister did not like me and all I wanted was for her approval. And that was kind of my early story, which was that I don't belong. I didn't feel like I belonged to my family. I was highly energetic. I had temper tantrums. I wrote about this in my book. Like my mom and dad had to literally forcibly sit on me to brush my teeth. I was just an explosive child. And I felt like I was too much for everybody. I was very aware of how I affected other people from a really young age. But I just wanted to belong. And I had this very specific experience in the third grade where, you know, kids have terrible stories of bullying. And this is not a terrible story of bullying. But this was a a point of I, I went to school one day and all of my friends turned against me. Because of this one girl that was popular that decided she didn't like me that day. And it was taunting. And then the next day, I came back and they liked me again. You know, and it was on to the next one. And I think I just carried this very significant feeling of something was wrong with me. I did not belong anywhere.
3: You bring up a very recent coaching call I had with a coaching client who had that same story where we were trying to uncover why there was so many issues with her, with other females, building relationships with other females, her sister-in-laws, not wanting to be close to them. And it all stemmed from in third grade. She went to a new school and she wanted to be with these cool girls. And they let her in the first day and she told them some things. She got honest and then they like turned on her and started these rumors. And that wound was up until... A few months ago, it was shaping every decision that she made when it came to relationships with females. So I think it's just fascinating to be able to uncover that and own the wound so then we can write the ending and not have that wound just hijack our whole life. That's right. That's right. Who would you say was one of your first real teachers?
2: Teachers is an interesting choice because all of my teachers couldn't stand me. I had experience in grade after grade after grade. Like, of just being extremely disliked by my teacher because I was a very, very energetic child. And so I remember my kindergarten teacher, I didn't listen to instructions on an art assignment. And I remember her holding it up to the classroom and (laughs) showing them (laughs) that I had like put together a plant picture wrong. And I had felt like from my first teachers, I don't think I had a teacher that actually was invested in my development until I was in high school, Mrs. Rios, you know? And so I'd say my first teacher was. My kindergarten teacher, who set off a trajectory of being disliked by the person that's supposed to unconditionally support you in your growth. And then really having a teacher, you know, Mr. Aikita and Ms. Rios in my high school, who just saw right through where I was at and were able to say, like, you know, this is not where you're going to do your best work. The stuff that you're struggling with and that you've struggled with is going to prepare you to do bigger things. And so, you know, I'd say somewhere between those three for my first teachers.
1: We like to get to the thick of things on Comeback Stories. We like to get to you know the deepest part of adversity for everyone on here. And it sounds like growing up for you was a lot of adversity. Could you pinpoint one moment in time or one event or one day where you feel like everything boiled over or you were as close to a rock bottom as you could possibly be?
2: I mean, it's interesting because I feel like I had so many of those. I felt like I kept on skating by barely without touching deep into my pain. And I think it's so interesting because I think every human needs to be in recovery. I think that recovery is something that I know it distinguishes me from people that have not touched into that moment. But I think that when we get close to the bottom We can either stop and tell ourselves the truth about what's happening, or we can just claw ourselves out and try and keep it going and keep it together. And so I had so many moments of where it just felt like the pain was insurmountable. But I had a very clear rock bottom moment that changed my life forever. When I was, I think I was 32, I had multiple addictions. I was bulimic, like extremely bulimic, binging and purging like $100, $200, $300 worth of food a day. I was drinking a couple of bottles, three bottles. I mean, I was was drinking you know, on the severe end of alcohol use disorder. I smoked pot every day from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed. And in the middle of the night, if I woke up, I smoked cigarettes. I was just, you know, I was so addicted in so many different ways to so many different things and so out of control. And I also had a really stressful job. And the only way I could manage the job and manage my life was, you know, I would come home on a Friday and the way to get through all of my work was just to numb out, And I would go on extreme benders and just lock myself up in my apartment, get food, drink, pass out, recover work. It was just a snowball. And I carried one on from a Friday night till a Tuesday morning somehow. And then I woke up, I was supposed to go to work and it was like 9 a.m. And like appearance wise, had it all together. But in my apartment that morning, I had five days worth of food and takeout. Just like literally probably like six huge leaf garbage bags full of used food containers or used alcohol containers. And then it was just littered on my apartment. My floor was sticky with beer and stuff I'd spilled on it. Um, I didn't have any sheets on my bed. My night table was just like an ashtray of where I would, you know, like dump bowl after bowl. And, uh, I woke up and I was still drunk and I had like a a fifth of Jameson in my hand. And the TV was on and my computer was on me and I stunk, you know, I was just like covered in the after effects of all of that. Plus bulimia. And I would go through those periods of time and I would just clean myself up, take the garbage out, clean the apartment, pull it back together, say never again, and then just go right back into it. Just like nothing had happened. Like I wasn't even there and I was cleaning up in that morning. I couldn't do it. I just kind of like turned out of my bed and crawled onto my floor and just was like grabbing at the floor. and. um screaming in an apartment building and just screaming that I couldn't do it anymore. You know, like not to to anybody, but just like, help me. I can't do this. Like I'm dying. And that was it for me. I mean, that wasn't it. It took me six months to get sober, but that was like this very, very like, I need help. This is not like something I'm going to grow out of. If I just keep on going, this is something I'm going to die from. So that,
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have not right now of, of my moment and, you know, I always remember that saying "Is like the, when the pain of staying the same outweighs the fear of change, that's when we'll really decide to make a difference. And what do you think was uh, the mindset or, you know, just the frame of mind that you were in that was keeping you from being the woman that you are today?
2: Trying to be the woman that I was told to be having an image presented to me of what I was supposed to be, likable, fuckable, successful, a specific weight. I just had this idea of like, if I'm really making it, I'm going to crush it at this job. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have a savings account. I'm going to keep my apartment clean. I'm going to work out this many times a day. I'm going to be this size And just keep it up at all costs. There's going to be this elusive other place that you're going to finally get. And when you get there, that's where you're going to get happy. And the thing that broke in me, not that day, but just as I started to confront, like, I have choices. I have choices here. I can keep all my friends happy and not freak them out by my change around drinking. You know, I can. I can keep my family happy and stay in the really toxic relationships I had with them. I can keep everyone else happy and I can die. Or I can start to make decisions based on what I actually want and what I actually need. And so the first change was breaking that pact around drinking. was literally my friends being very, very surprised and very, you know, like they took it personally. And I had to be like, I don't care. I don't care what you think about me not drinking. I don't care if it ruins our nights out. And and that feels like so insignificant now that that was it. But it was just that moment of like, I don't care if, if you feel weird drinking a mimosa around me, like too bad. And that changed everything for me because I started to understand, oh, I have power. Oh, I don't have to live by other people's standards. I can actually make decisions based on what I need. And that goes into also not doing rehab or not going, you know, to 12 step fellowships, or not, you know, I don't know, doing everything that everybody else told me I should be doing. It got it was my guiding light. Hmm.
1: That sounds like real freedom to me. Um I can feel, you know, the energy. I can feel how rooted you are in the new life that you've created and just how sick of the success formula, you know, like I tried to prescribe to the success formula and I was in the NFL and, you know, Signed a multi-million dollar contract, but I was miserable. And so that success formula that everybody else lays out doesn't work for us. We have to create our own. And with the way that you said that, it just blows me away. So what are some of the basic principles that you feel like you adopted into your life when you did decide to start taking action to make change?
2: I think the one is that being okay with being a mess, you know, like all of that I just laid out, but that does not mean I still don't get totally confused. I recreated this life while I became a CEO of a company and I had a huge book deal and I paid off all my debt and I bought a house. I did all the things. And then I got to a point and I was like, Oh, shit, I have just made another construct. I have just made new social contracts that I now have to uphold. Now I have to please people on Instagram. Now I have to be this person that's sober. So I think one of like the basic tenets of that is it's going to continue to blow up like you don't just become a different person. You have to work every single day on your life based on the person you are that day and still confront the same exact crap you confronted at the beginning it's just a different version of it it's just a different level of the video game you know and i think the other is just really being in integrity if i say something on instagram or in my book or if i am saying anything anywhere it's got to align with my behavior And so I just got out of a relationship and I watched myself in that I was not in alignment. And I think constantly that alignment helps me to watch my words. It helps me to make sure that I'm in integrity between what I say, what I do and what I believe. And I know very well when I'm off that path and it hurts and I'm very aware of it. And I think the other piece of this is mindfulness and awareness, you know, and fourth, being so easy on myself. Everyone's just always trying, you know? We're always just doing our best. Um, sometimes our best is just terrible.
3: I hear a lot of core values and understanding and knowing who you are. We talk a lot about our core values really being the filter system. Our values are the bedrock of who we are. And we can actually use those values as a filter system to make every decision in our lives off of. And if we make decisions that are not in alignment with our core values, things can get messy. And it's easier to take things personally. If we're not being true and we are not speaking our truth, then when you get the critics or you get people that are questioning your approach to sobriety and your inspiration, it's a lot easier to take it personally. But if we know who we are and what we stand for, for the most part, even though we're still human, it doesn't cut as deep.
2: You're so right and I think for me when I when you hear me say that I'm very sensitive and I do take it personally but what I have is a place to go back to the place that I go back to is just leaving all the other people out of the equation and being right with myself and that's where I al- always go back to which is how do I take accountability in this situation how do I take accountability for my feelings my reactions what I believe what I don't believe and I think that that's what creates the solid ground it's less about knowing who I am cuz I forget all the time it's more about how do I keep showing up and like the the truth of this and use this?
3: Can you take us back a little bit? A big reason why I also wanted you on our show is because you have Darren and I who are, I have air quotes, AA guys, even though I I attend AA and alcohol wasn't even really my thing, but to me it's all the same and really why I still show up there. The main reasons are community and service, and then just that whole part of being accountable. But like, can you tell us a little bit about your approach? Did you go to AA, and it didn't resonate? What did work? And I know some of your story of being a director level in the healthcare world and seeing misalignment there, and how that really allowed you to step into your truth. Also,
2: yeah, that was a lot of questions. Um, right. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. Um so I think for me, yes, I did go to AA. I didn't do it until about six months over. And w- the first day I went to AA was the first day after the last day I ever drank. So I had obviously known AA was a choice. I think that what kept me out of AA at the beginning was just like, no way in hell. Um, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not going there. That is not going to be my life. And so because I knew I had to quit drinking and because I knew that wasn't the route I was going to go. And also I couldn't go to rehab. I didn't know about smart recovery at the time. There seemed to be so few options. I did what I do, which is I researched. And so I started to essentially read books about alcohol and alcohol addiction and recovery. And for me, I formed a really strong sense of an idea that I didn't want to drink. I developed a really strong sense of of, of how I wanted to view essentially alcohol and the place it had in my life. And so for me, I think the research I did led me to books like Alan Carr's work. I read Jason Vale's book. And these were books that really don't focus necessarily on there's something wrong with you. Alcohol works for everyone, but you, I really subscribed to an idea that there was something really wrong with our society. There was really something wrong with the way that we've been Programmed to believe we're supposed to use alcohol and there's something wrong with you if you can't. I'd say by the time I got into A, I had a really solid foundation of how I thought about recovery. And also in that process, really started to self trust. I started to learn to trust myself and to trust that I was making the right decisions for myself. To me, the evidence was that I had two choices I could have kept drinking or I could figure out how to not to. And I had invested everything I had into recovering. I was fully invested in my recovery. And then I was also getting these messages that if I didn't go to AA, I I wasn't really invested in my recovery and I wasn't taking it seriously. And so I think there was just this swirl of stuff that was confusing, but I also was really lonely. And I also was really scared that I was going to keep on trying to quit drinking and, and not hit it. And so I went to AA because I was tired of being afraid of going to AA and tired of afraid of like sitting in that circle and saying you know I'm an alcoholic to me it felt like I had run out of options and so I did I went to AA and I did it for a few months but I found absolute relief and I I found that sense of like being in a room where there's real life people there was people that look like you and not like you but like actual people that are dealing with this thing were before that wasn't visible at all to me I had no idea that other people were as (laughs) miserable as I was and as scared as I was and all that. And it was just like such a relief. But I also had this very specific experience where people really just flocked to me and were like, you need a sponsor, you need to do this. And like, I had people tell me I would drink again, if I didn't do this. And it was not just once or twice. It was like, every time I started to go, it it was almost like this, this sense of, of I'm doing it wrong. And it really started to eat away at what had saved me, which was, I'm listening to myself and I'm listening to what feels right. And it didn't feel right. And that was really it. It was no bigger or smaller than it wasn't helping me. It wasn't actually supporting what I felt was actually saving my life. And so I stopped going. And then that just opened up this vault of doubt. And it took me years to get over, you know, that my recovery was valid because I didn't do, you know, what we're supposed to do. Mm.
3: And is that kind of the foundation of your belief system? And even with your company, Tempest, where you're putting people at the center of the recovery and not Mm -hmm. institutions making the decisions for them. So it's follow the individual pathway that works for you.
2: Yeah, I got into a lot of the history of like medicalization, a lot of the history of you know how mental institutions came to be and how we've dealt with addictions and 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 mental health and even just physical health. And I think for me, what really stands out is that it's another system that really does um, it creates dominator hierarchies where there's people that are smarter than you and you're a patient, and are experts. And I think that Tempest, there's a number of things that it, it was built, you know, based on. And I think one was just the, there's so much disaggregation and in, in what we need in order to recover it we need therapy we need you know physical rebalancing we need spirituality we need community we need habit we need rigor we need you know like endless things and you have to go over here for a therapist and you have to go over here for a medical doctor if you can even find a medical doctor that's trained in addiction medicine you have to go over here but you know so for me it was really just how do we start to like bring all these things together so it's not just this one way. How do we make a space where it, you can use AA and 12 step fellowships or harm reduction or, you know, all these things. And it's not like you're choosing a different camp that's against another camp. You're actually able to bring all these things together. And then again, it's also this, I have this really firm belief, especially in addiction, because the way that we treat people, um, historically, and still, is that when people suffer from addiction, they're believed to have lost their right to make decisions for themselves. And you can see this in the fact that our largest treatment institution is our prison industrial complex. And that when people are, you know, using substances, I'm reading a book in Between Two Kingdoms right now, and she's talking about how when she had cancer, the author, People came to her house and said, how can we help you? How can we fix you? And that's not what happens when people are at the end of addiction. People are not coming to your house with casseroles. They're like, clean your shit up. You're messing up. And so for me, I think it was really out of a lot of anger toward how the most sensitive and vulnerable individuals in our society are often coerced into systems that take away the power of their choice, that believe they know what's better for them instead of using that as an opportunity to remind people of of what they've forgotten and using that as an opportunity to start helping individuals build self-trust, build pride, build self-esteem, you know? And so for me, it was just total flip. Like, I don't think you build people up by pressing them down and telling them they need to remember every bad thing about themselves. And I think you help people by reminding them of things that they've forgotten and showing them the possibility and reminding them of how much power that they have.
1: That's great. I was reading the Tempest Manifesto and I like the one that's like, it's not a sad consequence. It's a proud choice. And a lot of people at that point in their lives, and they feel like, it's like, Oh, well, let me just salvage these last few broken pieces of me and see what I can get out of the rest of my life. Instead of seeing it like a platform as something that's like gearing them up to, you know, slingshot them into a better life. It, it's hard to, develop that attitude you know but i feel like those that can are the ones that can not only just be successful and accomplish a lot like you but to really truly know when you're by yourself when you look in the mirror that you really do have freedom in your life and you really do have peace and serenity in your life so I, i feel like that point really was like yeah like You should be proud that you're taking onus of your life at that moment in time instead of just being like, oh, well, this is all I got. So I got to do it. But like saying like, okay, I'm gonna do the best with this that I can and watch what happens when I do it. So I just felt moved by that. I wanted to share that.
2: You're so right. And I think this is like the beautiful thing of it is like it's such an opportunity if only we can see it, like to break that completely, to be in that much truth, you know, and to realize that it's like anything, anything that we come up against is just brutal those are the things that make us, those are like those opportunities that allow us to kind of, it's like the most fertile ground you can have when everything just doesn't work, especially in big, painful ways.
3: I like how earlier you mentioned, we all should be in recovery. And I put a post out a couple of years ago saying we're all recovering from something. And of course, you know, you get some pushback from that, but um, I am 100% in alignment with your comment, and do believe, especially this last year. Are you kidding me? So just knowing like, yeah, we all should be in recovery. We're all recovering from something. This is the essence of the work, the work that's never going to
2: stop our soul work. That's right. That's right. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been trying to write about it and thinking about it a lot, just what it means to be in recovery. And for me, what it means to be in recovery is that like every day I'm in recovery. And that is not something I have to live out. It's actually like this constant choice of the first thing I have to do is uphold the tenets of my own recovery, which is like, you know, radical honesty with myself, accountability, and it's a lot of the same stuff. That's in the 12 steps, right? In the fellowship of AA, which is just like keeping your side of the street clean. All of the things that we know we can't do, all the things we know like get in the way of us having an authentic life, you know, doing the work, living in our truth. It's hard. It's not for the faint of heart.
3: I heard a little inspiration about why you wrote the book, but what's your biggest inspiration and who are you trying to reach? I know the title's Quit Like a Woman, but I can promise you this isn't just for women.
2: And I think that's really important. I don't need to tell you both this, but like anything that's not dominant culture is just assumed to be for that segment. Right. And so it's every book on recovery, except for quitlet and memoirs, every system of recovery was created for men. It was created specifically for men and women use stuff like this all the time without Um, being like, well, that's a man's program because everything created for dominant culture is expected to be for everybody. And so in this way, this is a book centered in a woman's experience, but just because it's centered on a woman's experience doesn't mean it's gendered. It doesn't mean it's just for women. And so I think I wrote it not just for women. I wrote it specifically, one, because I felt like if I didn't write the book, then I would die. It just felt like a thing that I had to do. But one of the earliest realizations that I had, I mean, there's just like things over the years. When I told one of my friends really early on, I don't think anybody should drink. I think it's such a waste. And the way that we're forced into this culture that thinks drinking is this really important thing that everybody should be able to do. And I think there was just really wanting to change the conversation around alcohol. like So many people in my you know, old life thought that I was suffering some consequence. And I was like, no, this is really great over here. Actually, this is so much better than going to a bar on Friday night or Saturday night. It's so much better than that life that like thinks alcohol is so important that you'll do anything to keep it in it. And there's shades of that. You don't have to be on the spectrum of alcohol use disorder to have a life that's centered around alcohol and to lose out. And so for me, it was really just wanting to draw in you know, that conversation. But it was also just looking at what we have encountered in the last four or five years and how much of our activism includes everything but doesn't actually include self-oppression, like doesn't actually include the ways that we are convinced to keep ourselves drugged. And so, you know, I have a lot of activist friends that like celebrate with alcohol. And to me, it was just like, if we're talking about true liberation, we have to look at every single thing that we're doing that's keeping us from our power. And so it just was very contradictory to me. There was this thing I think I wrote about in the book about Bitch Magazine kept on inviting me to cocktail hours to go talk about quote unquote resistance. And I was just like, you're taking a corporate drug, you know, and celebrating it. And that's the the, like hallmark of the evening to talk about, you know, liberating yourself. That just doesn't make sense to me. And so I wanted to, you know, I mean, I could keep going on. There were so many different things, but over the years I had threaded ideas together and the book was like everything that I wanted to say that somehow miraculously came out, um, in one volume. So
3: I hear a lot of gratitude in your sobriety and in your walk. What are you most grateful for today?
2: I mean, the last year has made me be grateful for. <laughs> every night I ran out to go to bed, and when I my face touches my sheets, I like the first thing I say is like, "Thank you for these pillows." You know, I try and be grateful for everything because I think we don't spend enough time in gratitude. I think that everybody has something to be grateful for, and we are constantly searching for the things that we have to fix. And so for me. I have to be always grateful for everything that comes my way. Otherwise I'm missing a plot. And so I have a million things to be grateful for, but I also try and be grateful for the penny I find on the street, you know, and like just anywhere that I can have it. Um, cause it's so easy to think that we don't have what we need right now.
1: Yeah. Being conscious of that need for gratitude is amazing. I remember that dark times in my life where it was like all I could focus on was what I didn't have or
2: That's right. what I I was
1: lacking. And you know, you're so profound with your words, through your writing. But if you could shoot one tweet, one 140 character text to somebody that resembles you or your past or what you've been through and feels kind of stuck there, what would that tweet, what would that message be to them?
2: Um, I'm going to steal this from my ex. Learn to suffer. I think that's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently. We're just not good at suffering and we need to learn to suffer. We as a society especially need to learn to suffer. It is not a mistake when we are. What the mistake is, is trying to cover over it with every other thing instead of actually being in it.
1: So Without, yeah, there's I know for a fact there's there's wisdom in suffering, knowledge and suffering. That's only great to learn exactly grace so yeah people just take that advice uh, apply it um much easier said than done but very well worth it yeah and if you could give one person a comeback story shout out one person that you felt had the greatest impact on your turnaround the recreation of your life um who would that one person be if you could name them
2: well, I'm trying to go for like the gritty, gritty story. I think I'm going to say my friend Colleen Kearney. I think about her a lot. I was with her and I watched her for years trying to quit drink, and I've never seen somebody so committed <laughs> to it <laughs> and so committed to being in it and to showing up for herself. And um, it's like the the comeback stories oftentimes aren't like the most important ones are not like the before and after. It's so you know, even though those are just like precious, precious stories to behold, but I think the ones that are just the quiet plotters who just continue to stay with it and show up. That's what change comes from is from staying with it and coming again and again and again and again. And she's the first person that came to mind. So
3: you said staying with it. And I know meditation is the bedrock or a huge piece of not only your recovery. I know it's Darren's recovery. It's for my recovery. I am blessed to to teach it and guide it and, try every day to still stay committed to the practice, but how has that kind of been one of the foundations of your sobriety?
2: I mean, so I just transitioned. I spent about six months looking for a replacement for CEO at my organization. We just raised another round of venture. You know, like Chrissy Teigen talking about my book, I've done probably 50 interviews in the last 60 days, renegotiated my role, got into a relationship, got out of the relationship in the middle of COVID. Um, And the only way that I can hang on and be. Like I was thinking about this just the other day. I cannot believe I haven't lost it, you know? The amount of pressure that I've been under, I cannot believe that I'm mentally sound in this. It doesn't mean I'm not reactive. It doesn't mean I haven't had meltdowns. It doesn't mean I'm not a mess. Like meditation doesn't just fix you and make you into a totally different person. But the fact that I still have my center and I still have a place to come home to and a place to return to. That is meditation.
1: I feel
3: that. You brought me back to. I just started this men's group last week, a recovery based men's group, not AA, but there's a lot of AA guys in it. And we're starting off the group with meditation. And I brought everybody into the meditation. And during it, I just started to get super emotional, which I haven't had a meditation like that in a while. And through the meditation, first, I was super emotional because I was so grateful to have such solid men around me meditating outside then i also started to reflect on which you do think in meditation by the way for those that maybe don't don't meditate or think it think it's about not thinking
2: all you do um, think <laughs> yeah
3: but i was like why sometimes is this still a struggle to do when i'm feeling so peaceful right now and so serene like why if you have the answers to the test even somebody that air quotes again teaches this and tells everybody else to do it, sometimes still can feel like checking it off the list. And that's my reminder, like the work is never going to stop for me. Mm -mm. It's never going to stop.
2: No, it's so true. I resist meditation still, you know, like nearly a decade later. I know what it does for me. It is, it's like having the answers to the test, but you just don't use them or resist using them. It's, yeah, I understand exactly what you just said.
3: Well, you have a lot of good quotes on your Instagram pages in the book. One thing I'd love to end on, maybe you touching, and then we can wrap this up. One of your quotes is, the goal isn't to be sober. The goal is to love yourself so much that you don't need to drink. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Because Darren and I are both on a huge love yourself kick.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's, it was something that I came up with. It's something I said to a client probably like six years ago. I posted that so many different times. I used to do one-on-one coaching and then I'd have these like profound realizations while I was working one-on-one with people. And I I, I just remember I had a client and she was so stuck in just beating the shit out of herself for having had a drink when many drinks when she didn't want to. And I was just like, you're not trying to learn how to not drink here, right? You're trying how to escape this right here, like this right here, the cycle of waking up and self-loathing and hating yourself so much and trying to be perfect at it. That is the, the cycle you're trying to break. The, the alcohol is the secondary thing. The primary thing is you can't be with yourself when you mess up and how you talk to yourself in that. And so, a lot of times we're going for 30 days, 60 days, a year, five years, and we look really at these benchmarks of success. But the success is like in that moment when you drank or you used or whatever you did, can you actually stop and have complete and total self compassion for yourself? Because in those moments, those are opportunities to change the way that you actually treat yourself. And if you treat yourself in a different way, if you have a good relationship with self, then you don't have to drink, you don't have to turn it off.
3: Couldn't agree more. Um, powerful, powerful words. Well, we just want to acknowledge you. I'll first acknowledge you and I'll let Darren wrap it up. But first, one thing that came up for me when you were sharing that as I look at Darren and look at you on the screen is I've been coaching Darren the last year with mental mindset. And it's really just heart set. It's more than just mental coaching. Yeah. But one of our end of the year reflections was I asked him what he was most proud of. And he said, because I stuck with doing things differently. The reason he's sober, he doesn't use the NFL as an excuse to do other things that maybe other NFL guys are doing. He does things differently. And I want to acknowledge you because you're doing things differently and you're being authentic to who you are. So as I see both of you guys on the screen right here, I just see authenticity. And I think it's so cool that you've got an NFL football player, co host, bringing on a guest, right? That the name of her book, Quit Like a Woman. It's just the whole thing is really cool. And maybe she doesn't follow our exact path, but for us to be open-minded enough to know that there's many different paths. And I just want to honor your path and honor your words. And thank you for giving us the
2: time to share your inspiration and your heart with us. Same to both of you. These are my people, like sober folk, my folk. So I really, I've loved being here and I appreciate you you having me on, truly.
1: I know the younger version of you that was, told what to do told how, the way that she should do things I know that she would be proud of you because no matter what you've had to navigate throughout your life up to this point you did it your way and I feel like a lot of people can take that into being true to themselves not compromising on things that they believe in and just betting on themselves going forward so I thank you for what you had to share today and I know lives has yeah. been and uh, you embody a comeback story in every single way so thank you very much
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Holly.
1: This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.